you'll turn in your Bibles, please, to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. Now, I want to thank Pastor Ross and Pastor, Mo, uh, Pastor uh, Ross and, and, and Pastor Kevin for the opportunity to uh, speak tonight, in spite of the fact that they know how radical Katie is, and so um, they were still willing to figure that I probably wouldn't say anything uh, too off the cuff, whatever. So thank you to them for such an, an open door. Um, tonight we want to talk about, or tonight we want to consider, the most important subject in the universe. And believe it or not, it's not the Detroit Tigers. Uh, it's not the Detroit Lions. It's not the universe. Um, wait a minute, I'm from Ohio, so I can't say the name. It's not that school north of us. Uh, it's not Michigan State. It's not you, and it's not me, okay? But the most important subject we want to talk about is none other than God himself. And thankfully, God has given us a lot of information in the Bible so that we can really know him and we can understand some things about him. In other words, he's revealed himself to us, so we don't need to play a guessing game and just say, well, I hope this is what God is really like. But at the same time, I hope as you continually walk with God, uh, you're always humbled by, shall we say, his greatness. You're humbled, dare I say, in how little you really do know about him, no matter how much you study him. I love what Job tells us in Job chapter 26 and verse, in verse 14 where after he has just given us a lovely paragraph on God's awesome power, and he concludes the section by saying, Lo, these are the fringes or the outskirts of God's ways. In other words, after we've done so much and uncovered so many stones, if you will, yet all we can say is, you know what? We hardly know anything about God because he is so fantastically great. I like what Isaac Newton said many years ago, what we know is a drop, what we don't know is an ocean. And so, as we, uh, as, as we study this subject, it's always very, very appropriate, but it seems to me, as I get older, and I'm getting old, I'm over 71 years old now, the older I get, the more it seems that we're, we're seeing vicious attacks on the very person of God uh, by his enemies, but also by many people who would claim to be part of his family. And of course, uh, I, I, my, my, my work was in the Old Testament, so I love reading books on the Old Testament. And it is incredible how many so-called Old Testament scholars, and I don't even like to use the word scholars, shall we say just people who like the Old Testament and write books. It's incredible how many of them just blast God and say such ungodly, sometimes even blasphemous things about God. And they, and they say, well, I love God so much, that's why I have to tell you this about him. And it's like, yeah, right, give me a break. And so I'm not here tonight to defend God. I mean, you know, as I, as I say, God wears big boy pants, he can defend himself against the most blasphemous of attacks, even by people who would claim to know him. But we do, I think it is important for us to study this subject because of all these negative attacks that we hear just by being alive every day and people around us say all kinds of outrageously crazy things about God. But also we need, we need to study this is the very person of God just for our positive benefit. So we really have the stuff we need to grow. So in other words, we study this 
uh, because of the negative as well as the positive. And at the top of your sheet there, and by the way, is there anybody who didn't get one of these handouts on the way in? Um, have somebody, a couple up here in the front. Do we have a, see the teens were bringing some. So, okay, just uh, keep your hand up and, uh, and they will make sure to get you some. Was, all through the years as I pastored and so on, I just always loved to give a handout so that uh, people would have something to take home with them, etc. And I'll be honest, so they had something to doodle on if they got bored with what I was saying. Okay, so, so you can do that as well if you need it. But uh, let's see, we've got some more coming. Okay, so keep your hand up. But at the top of your sheet, first of all, I give you a negative quote. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak. A vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser. A misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. Don't you wish that Dawkins would tell us what he really believes about God? He's an, he's an atheist, and, and I, I think if I remember correctly, he died a few years ago. Um, but yeah, those were just co the common kind of words that he used in his book. In, in his books, he's, he wrote multiple books of, of his description of God. But then let's flip the coin over positively. A.W. Tozer, a local church will only be as great as its conception of God. An individual Christian will be a success or a failure depending upon what he or she thinks of God. It is critically important that we have a knowledge of the Holy One, that we know what God is like. And then another positive quote. The problem with many people today is that they have not found a God big enough for modern needs. They are cherishing a hothouse God who could only exist between the pages of the Bible or inside the four walls of a church. Now, I would encourage you to get J.B. Phillips' book. This is the J.B. Phillips who way back in the 50s and 60s of a previous generation or previous millennium uh, wrote a really interesting book called Your God is Too Small. And he talks about all these ways that people look at God and he says, if that would be my idea of God, I can understand why you blame him. I can understand why you struggle with God because you have such a misrepresentation of him. And then he turns it around and he talks about the true God. So that's a, a, a easy, easy read book, even though it's very theologically meaty. Uh, I, I'd encourage you to get that. But but ask if we if we um, you know kind of ask ourselves the question. Well, wait a minute. Uh, how how in the world do people get such misconceptions? And maybe I should say prior to that in Hebrews 12 that we're going to get to here in just a second. It seems that these people were that the writer of Hebrews is responding to people who were basically discouraged and questioning God's love during the midst of hard times. And they were just saying, well, well, you know, what, what about God? Why would God do this? And, and so forth. And so as we're going to see, the writer of Hebrews is trying to, shall we say, straighten out some of their misconceptions about God. But perhaps we would say, how can people get such misconceptions about God? What does I put on your sheet? Uh, one way is simply upbringing or early training. And there might be somebody here who was even raised in a Christian home or a so-called Christian home. 
But wow, what, what, what your parents told you on Sunday or, or the way they acted on Sunday when they went to church and smiled at everybody was totally different than what they were like during the week. And you just got a, a, a bummer of a picture of God. Like, is that what God is like, a real two-faced individual? And that has come into you in your adult life. And it's, it's shall we say, well, I ruined you. Or maybe the world system, just the contemporary culture, just by being alive and having the world's garbage poured onto us every day, even without trying to, to go to their sources, you can easily get a mis misconceptions about God. Or maybe it's just our interpretation of experiences where, where people have gone through a lot. And like in our adult Sunday school class this morning, we were talking about some of that. And even uh, in, in Sunday uh, in the morning service with... with uh, can I call you Pastor Lincoln? Or you're not pastor yet, just uh, pastor in training, Lincoln. Uh, but and I appreciate your message. Thank you very much. But, but just our, our, the experiences we have, you know, where people will say, well, if God really loves me, and then you can finish how they, they, they do. Or if God is really in control, or if God is all-powerful. Well, <laughs> if we start looking at things like that, we can really have some problems with God. Or as I also put on your sheet, just an enlarged image of ourselves. Have you ever said, if I were God, I would do thus and so? Job tried that trick on God, and so you know what God said? Hey, Job, I'm going to put you in charge for a day, and here are some of the simple things that you need to do if you're going to be a God for a day. And that's when Job started, okay, God, maybe you're doing a better job of ruling the universe than I thought you were. Yeah. But that can easily happen with us because our circumstances, our experiences would maybe make us think, well, what kind of a God is it that would do that for me? I'm a nice guy. What have I ever done to God that he would do that back to me? Well, that's not that's not how we get our conception of God. We go to the word of God. And so in Hebrews 12, we have very encouraging words as we see God's fatherly care and how great it really is. So if you'll follow along with I read, as I read Hebrews 12, beginning at verse 4, and I'll read through verse 11. And by the way, I'm reading from the King James Version, the AV. Uh, ye have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, but he for our profit that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now, no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward, it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Now, the key word, hopefully you picked it out as I was reading it, the key word in the passage in the King James there was the word chasten or chastisement, or in verse 9 it was the word correct. That's all the same verb or noun in the original language. 
Uh, and, and if you have a more modern translation, perhaps it used the word discipline uh, or, or a similar word to that. Um, but that's the, that's the punchline of the passage. Now, usually when we think of the English word to chasten or to discipline, it is negative. Okay, usually that's our negative thought. But the Greek word actually includes the negative chastening as well as the positive education. And so I like to, when, I, when I'm reading uh, and, and I read this word, I like to, in my mind, say child rearing. And that's why I titled the message, as you see at the top of your sheet, Child Rearing by a Perfect Father. Because as, as, as you know, as we know, as we raise our children, there are an awful lot of components that go into the child rearing process. It is not a simple thing. A lot of different, a lot of different things have to, have to go into it. And that's what this passage is talking about, how God raises or how God rears his children. Now, let's backtrack for just a moment. So this passage can be seen in the, uh, in the entire perspective. So go there below the quotes, and you see that, that mini spiritual timeline, if you will. And to the left of the cross, even though it doesn't say anything, that is a reference to when we were unsaved. And remember, the Bible says when we were unsaved, we were a child of the devil. Always remember, the devil has no concern for anybody other than to take them and break them and misuse them and abuse them. And then when he's done with them, throw them in the gutter and say, okay, go find, go find somebody else. I got everything out of you that I can. Okay? But fortunately, we come to the cross, and when God saved me, the Bible tells us that he birthed me into his family. He made me a member of this special group that is called Christians. And you can see that there on um, uh, just to the right of the, of the cross. We are now a new baby in Jesus Christ using Peter's terminology there in 1 Peter 2.2. And from that moment until either my death, your death, or Jesus' return, as we keep going on the timeline to the right, God's desire or God's work is to conform me to the very image of the Lord Jesus Christ himself so that I can properly represent the family name in this life. And the family name is none other than God himself. This is theologically the big word that we call sanctification from the cross all the way to the right, either to death or the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. You could just be flying a banner over that that says sanctification, which is God's daily work the Holy Spirit's daily work to conform me into the very image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And because I am his child now, he's going to treat me as his child. And that's what this passage, Hebrews 12, is all about. So think of it like this, okay? When you have a little baby in your, in your family, you, you begin a process of child rearing that is going to last 18 or 20 years, okay? In today's generation, 25 to 30, they're going to live in your basement. But uh, well, however long it is, okay? But you know you have committed yourself. You know you've committed yourself to raising that child. And it's going to take a lot of blood, sweat, and tears, and prayers, and, and a lot of different things as you seek to help that young man or that young woman grow up and mature. 
educationally, socially, morally, I mean, you name it. It is a process. And that is exactly what God is doing in the sanctification process. When he saved us, when he brought us to birth at the cross, he committed himself. And some of the hymns we were singing tonight are talking about that very thing, the commitment God made to himself. He committed himself to raise us as his child. And that's why he is this perfect father who is child-rearing us, even though at times in our experiences we might not think he's the perfect father. And we're going to talk about that because this passage does. But he is the perfect father. And what we see is how he is going to be raising us. And this, a realization like this really ought to be very, very encouraging for us. Did you notice in verse 5, as it began, and the writer said, And ye who have forgotten the exhortation, that's actually a word that has the strong nuance of encouragement. So as the writer starts, he's telling us, You have forgotten this great encouragement which speaks to you as sons and daughters of God. So don't be discouraged when God seems to do something to you and it's like, well, why would God do that to me? I've never done anything bad to him. No, say, thank God for a father. And I'm going to repeat this next phrase multiple times tonight because it's so impressive. Not because I thought it up, but we have a father who cares more for us than we care for ourselves. I have a dad who has more invested in me than I have invested in myself. And I'm here to tell you, I'm pretty egocentric. I, I've got a lot of stock in Royce Short Enterprises. And I have a sneaky feeling if you'd be honest, you'd say the same thing about yourself. But we have a dad, we have a heavenly father who has more concern for us than we have for ourselves. And that's what the writer of Hebrews here is going to be laying out for us. Now, one other quick passage before we, uh, be, before we look at this. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4. You don't need to turn there. But in Ephesians 6, 4, it's in the paragraph where it's talking about, you know, husbands, wives, employers, employees, etc. And then in, in 6, 4, it says, and you fathers don't to exasperate your children, etc. But here's the key phrase. Bring them up in the nurture. This is King James Version, but the word nurture there is the same word we're talking about here, child-rearing. But bring up your child in the child-rearing and admonition of the Lord. Okay? So it's telling us at least two key things. First of all, it's telling us that the Lord child-trains us because it's saying that that's the model. And number two, or the second thing, it's telling us that God's work with us is a pattern as we raise our children. In other words, if you're here and you're a dad and Father's Day is coming up and you say, well, well, what would be a great thing for me to know on Father's Day? Always remember this. Look at the way vertically that God child trains you and then turn the line horizontally and say, God, help me as I work with my children to child train me in the same way. And this passage in Hebrews 12 is going to constantly be making those, those contrasts. We have parents like this who train us one way, but we always need to go back to God's child rearing, which is this way. So notice the quote that I put uh, next on your sheet there over to the uh, right of the timeline. We serve a Savior who suffered and we know he will not lead us into meaningless suffering. The writer points to the importance of discipline and proceeds to show that for Christian suffering, 
uh, for Christians, suffering is rightly understood only when seen as God's fatherly discipline, correcting and directing us. Suffering is evidence not that God does not love us, but that he does love us. Believers are sons and are treated as sons. It is not as misery, accident, or the like that Christians should understand suffering, but as discipline. God uses it to teach important lessons. So what are those important lessons? Okay, very quickly tonight, you see five of them on your sheet. Let's, let's just walk through them. They're very, very simple and yet incredibly profound. Number one, God's discipline is paternal. You can see that to over and over basically in verses 5 to 8. First of all, A, the very fact that he disciplines us is a sign that we are his children, members of his family. Remember John 8 and verse 44 where Jesus told the Jews, you are of your father the devil and the lusts of your father you will do. And then he went on, he was a liar from the beginning, a murderer, etc. Okay? So what Jesus is reminding us here is if we are not being child trained by God, then, as the passage says, we are bastards. That is, we are illegitimate. We're not even saved, as we would say it in our language today. Because the devil is still your father, and God is not your father. And if God is not your father, he's not doing these kinds of things that we're going to talk about tonight. Because you're still a servant, you're still a slave of the devil. And therefore, have you, have you ever heard of, a, uh, have you ever talked to a person who, who claims to be a Christian and maybe, maybe brags about the fact that they can do certain things and their conscience never bothers them? Oh, I do this all the time. My conscience never bothers me. And the things they're talking about are not just picky little things like food preferences. I mean, we're talking about moral issues. But dear people, that is not something to brag about because in effect, that person is probably telling you, you know what, even though they claim to be saved, they're, they're basically saying, you know what, I'm not, I'm not even saved. Because if I would be saved, my dad would get on my case. And by dad, I'm talking about our Heavenly Father. God would get on my case and I would feel at least bad that I'm doing it. But when they can just indiscriminately do this, that, and the other thing, and their conscience supposedly never bothers them, you've got to wonder, is this person a member of God's family? Because God child trains those who are his children. As it says there on your sheet, another quote, the mark of the unregenerate is that God lets them have their own way. And you know how, how bad Romans chapter 1 is when it talks about God giving the unsaved people over to the lusts that they want. And it doesn't bother them. In fact, they love it. Rest of the quote, the mark of those in union with Christ is that God turns them to his way. So remember that God cares for all his creatures, but his special care is for those who are his children. And therefore, as a family member, we have all the rights and privileges as well as the responsibilities to show forth the Lord's name. B, second point here, uh, discipline is a sign of his great love. We're so prone to complain that discipline shows a lack of love when actually the opposite is true. It's because he loves us so much that he disciplines us. Think of it this way. We are not being disciplined by an enemy. I mean, if an enemy is disciplining us, sure. We could say, well, well, yeah, they don't care about me. I doubt their motives. I doubt what they're trying to do with me. But we are being disciplined by someone, uh, and we're not being disciplined by, shall we say, someone else's parent. And, of course, someone else's parent, as we think of it horizontally, hopefully cares for us, etc. 
but they probably don't care for us as much as our real parents do. But when it comes to this discipline, it is God himself who cares so much for us. And so as I said a moment ago, we have a father who cares more for us than we even care for ourselves. Two, God's discipline is purposeful. Verse 8 specifically, but the, the tenor of the whole paragraph. Now think of it this way. What is a normal human response when someone is disciplined? Well, it uh, could be that we despise it. It could be that we question it. It could be that we mock it. Or it could be we just give up and throw in the towel and say, hey, I can never please that person. So just, just forget it. Don't even try anymore. Those are, those are human responses to, to discipline. Those are human responses that children have when parents are disciplining them as they're growing up. But notice what verse 5 says, I must not despise it. In other words, I must not think lightly of it or, or make light of it and just mock it. I must not become faint when I'm rebuked. That is, I must not uh, lose courage or throw in the towel or just give up and say, who really cares anyhow? No, no. But as he says here, when God rebukes me, he has a purpose in what he does, so I must respond properly even when I don't understand it. You can go back to Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12, where it talks about this very fact. So, for example, let's just think of it this way again as we're raising children with house rules. Okay? Hopefully you have some house rules for your children. And then when those children are young, they don't understand the house rules. Okay, uh, they, they, they view them maybe as a waste of time, something meant to make their life miserable. Maybe they think the rules aren't all that important. Well, again, just think of it like this. Let's just say that, you know, here you have little Johnny or Susie. They just turned three or four. You bought them a brand new tricycle. You live uh, right there on a four lane road. And Johnny or Susie says, oh, thank you, Mommy and Daddy. I thank you for buying this for me. And they jump on their tricycle and they head down the driveway as fast as they can to that four-lane road. You say, where are you going? And they say, I'm going out here on this open road that was made just for three-year-olds and tricycles. And you say, oh, yeah, I guess that's why Michigan almost said paved the road there. But they don't, <coughs> they don't pave roads here, do they? But... But, but you say, no, no, that's not what that four-lane highway is for. You could get killed. And a three-year-old child, you know, in effect says, what does it mean to get killed? I don't understand it. But because you are the parent, hopefully, you understand it. Or maybe your son or your daughter loves stuffed animals, and their favorite stuffed animal is a panda bear, almost life-size in their bedroom. They sleep with it every night. And you go to the zoo with them. And you call him and you say, hey, here's the panda bear exhibit. And the child goes running there and tries to put its leg over the fence to get in with the panda bear. And you say, no, no, don't do it. The panda bear will kill you. And they say, what? You know, panda bears are my favorite. Uh, they're very sque squishable or squeezy and huggable and whatever. Why can't I get in there? And you just have to say, no, you don't, you, you're not old enough to understand it, but panda bears, real panda bears are not nice like that. It, you'll get killed. Okay, well, <clears throat> you had a purpose in your rule. You weren't trying to be mean to that little boy, little girl, whatever, and by, by depriving them of a four-lane road with their tricycle. 
You weren't depriving them of fun at the zoo by saying, don't crawl in there with the panda bear. But you knew what you were doing. Maybe you were trying to protect them from danger. Maybe some of your house rules have to do with uh, uh, building a positive character into your child. Maybe it was to stay on the right path and keep from deviating. But you know what, dear people? This is exactly, as we turn it now, vertically, what our Heavenly Father does spiritually as He deals with every one of us. And even, even those of us who have walked with God for more than, a, more than 50 or 60 years, we haven't attained perfection yet. God still needs to deal with us in our misunderstandings of things. And that's exactly what he does. I mean, think of like the book of Leviticus, okay? Many times in the book of Leviticus, when God gives a command, he simply after the command says, I am the Lord. He doesn't go into an explanation why of the command, and we wrestle with that today, and and those who write commentaries wrestle with, well, why did he give them that command? It doesn't seem very appropriate, etc. But you know why I think maybe that's the case? Well, multiple reasons, I'm sure. One of them, I think, simply is God wants us to know that we don't need explanations for everything he tells us as as, as his children, even as spiritual adults. He just wants us to obey him. And other times, I think if I would question God on some of that, he would simply say, short, you don't have the cerebral capabilities to grasp, but if I gave you a paragraph or two to explain it. So just get busy and obey me and let me worry about why I am doing this because I have a purpose in it. And that's what, that's, that's what we need to do. Whatever part, wherever we are in life, was God is working with us and we don't, we don't understand everything God is doing. We need to simply say, okay, God, I am trusting you that you have a purpose in this and it is going to be the best thing for me. And so as I put on your sheet there, the older I get, the smarter my parents become. Maybe some of you parents need to get that as a motto over your mantle in your living room, whatever, so your children remember that. But also we could turn that, the older I get spiritually, the smarter God becomes. Because the more you read the Word of God and understand what God is doing in your life, the more you begin to realize, wow, 30 years ago when God would convicted me of something or told me something, whatever, and it was like, well, why would he do that? Why is that so significant? And now in hindsight, you look and you say, whoa, what if I had not obeyed God with that thing? So, I might not always understand why, but I can know he has a purpose. As the Ron Hamilton song says, Rejoice in the Lord. God never moves without purpose or plan when trying his servant and molding a man. Number three, God's discipline is perfect. Verses 9 and the beginning of verse 10. First of all, even as, as the writer admits it here, even the best Christian parents will blow it. In other words... Christian parents aren't perfect, and they have bad days. Coffee was cold. The the toast was burnt. It's raining outside. It's in the 40s when you were planning a family picnic, and so now it's like, oh, man, now what do we do? Yeah, so you just blow it. You blow up. God never does that. God never has a bad day. His coffee's never cold in the morning. His toast is never burnt. It's never the wrong weather. Secondly, 
Parents don't have all the facts. I mean, perhaps even another one of your children lied to you to get a sibling in trouble. Nobody can ever lie to God, so later God says, Oh, if only I would have known that, I wouldn't have done that. Nope. Or, parents are not omniscient, so they don't know all the events down the road like God knows. But thankfully, the second point there, God makes no mistakes. As uh, Kim Moore, the hymn writer, says, God makes no mistakes. He leads in every path. There's a purpose in every change he makes. And then, as I put the quote on the sheet there, has it ever dawned on you that nothing has ever dawned on God? Yeah, sounds silly, doesn't it? But think of how profound that is. Has it ever dawned on you that nothing has ever dawned on God? Or we might say, God has never taken the wrong person to the woodshed to apply the Board of Education to the seat of learning. God has never done it. Never taken somebody and then a minute later, an hour later, a day later said, you know what, I really blew that. I spanked the wrong child. No, never, never. And that's why we can say God's discipline is perfect. He never makes any mistakes. Never had a bad day, never erred in judgment, never had his facts wrong. So even though I might not understand what he's doing with me in the child-rearing process, I can still say, I know God makes no mistakes. And so the writer of Hebrews says that if we gave a respect to our, our earthly parents, and hopefully we did, He says, if we gave respect to our earthly parents, even though at times they blew it, how much more do you think we ought to be submitted to or subjected to a heavenly father who never has blown it and never will blow it? Therefore, we can respect and obey him. Number four, God's discipline is profitable, verses 10 and 11. First of all, when discipline comes, my perspective is this is painful. It's not a profit. This is grievous. It is not a joy. Remember, that is my perspective. (coughs) And my perspective is very, very limited. It's very, very fallen. And it's very, very, (coughs) excuse me, and it's very, very finite. Because God cares for me more than I care for myself, I can be assured that there is benefit for me. Secondly, his perspective. Oh, thank you. Okay. Excuse me a second. Would you like a drink first? Uh... Secondly, uh, his perspective is this is for my profit. Now, for example, when a parent disciplines a child, he might say something like, this hurts me more than it hurts you. And, of course, what does the smart aleck child usually respond with? Well, then why are you going to do it? Just don't do it if it hurts you so much, okay? But, no, we, we, you know, God's perspective is simply that, yes, he's not out, as I say, looking for little kids on the playground to, to be a bully to. No, that's not God's attitude. God is doing it because 
He knows it's for my profit. He knows it is what is best for me, even though I see it as something that is grievous. And so therefore, even as a parent knows it is uh, beneficial for a child, he says, well, I, I need to do this because I'm trying to make you a young man or a young woman that will grow up and honor God and obey God and be the kind of person you should be. So I am willing to do this for you. And then number five, God's discipline produces a product. Uh, the end of verse 10, that we might be partakers of his holiness. And then verse 11b, um, it, nevertheless afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Wow, that is amazing. God wants us to be partakers of his holiness. My father is doing all these things for me because he wants to produce in me a character just like his own. I love 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9 where it says, You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, etc., etc. And then he says, Why? In order that you might show forth... And the next, the, the next word is a difficult word to bring into English. King James Version uses the word praises, but that's really not a good word here. In order that you might show the moral excellencies or the virtues of the God who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Can you imagine, can you think of a better job description for every one of us this week and to go out into the Lapeer community, or as I head back to Utah later in the week, to go out into that community and say, I am here in order that I might show a watching world the moral excellency of God who saved me from, from darkness and brought me into spiritual light. So when people see me, they can say, Royce, I know who your dad is. And I say, oh, you know Bob Short? They say, no, I'm not talking about your earthly dad. There's something special, something different about you than all these other unsaved people that are around me. Your character smacks of more than just an earthling. That's what Peter says our job description is. Or 1 John 2, 6, he that says he abides in Christ. Remember, abiding is one of John's key words for being vitally in, uh, attached to, to God, to Jesus Christ. He who says he abides in Christ ought himself also, he has an obligation to walk, New Testament word for lifestyle, he has an obligation to have a lifestyle just as Jesus Christ. Does that mean I'm supposed to walk around in sandals and a long flowing robe and and have a beard and long hair like a first century Jew would have? No, no. But he's saying, if I claim to be vitally united to Jesus Christ, to God, I have a relationship with him, I'm, in, I'm a member of his family. I have, a oblig I have an obligation to have a lifestyle that would parallel the lifestyle of Jesus Christ. Whew. Yeah, wow. It's amazing. And it's all because now that God saved me, now that God saved you from the cross on, he says, that's what I've committed myself to do, to make you more like Jesus Christ. 
And I'll tell you, dear people, if when, when, we really get to, when we really get serious about sanctification, if we know we're really struggling in an area, and it's the Holy Spirit who is, is the member of the, of the Trinity that specifically indwells us and sanctifies us, if we get serious with, with God and say, Oh, God, you know, I know, I'm really struggling in this area, and I want you this week to really work on, my, work on that in my life. I'll tell you what. Don't ask for more than you really want, because he will really do it. And the way I say, just a homely expression, but the way I see it, there are some times when the Holy Spirit comes into your life, and he's like a bulldozer. Now, probably nobody in here has ever been hit with a bulldozer. I mean, I have an, an actual bulldozer, but you know how bad it would be if a bulldozer comes in and starts pushing big rocks this way and whatever. That, that wouldn't be any fun, I, I don't think. But there are some times there is so much junk in our life, the Holy Spirit needs to come like a bulldozer when we, when we pray that to get rid of all those big boulders and hindrances and everything else. There are other times when we pray that and the Holy Spirit will come and he'll bring some sandpaper. Now, it really isn't all that much fun to take sandpaper and rub it on you and so on, but it's a little better than getting run over by a bulldozer for a day or two, right? But the Holy Spirit will come and say, well, yeah, you're really working on this. And I think by using a number six grade sandpaper, I can, I can get you where I really want you to be in that area. And so that's what he'll do. But it's all because of this, this fact of God is trying to produce this product. He is trying to make me more like the Lord Jesus Christ. And so at the bottom of your sheet, um, I put this little chart, if you will, of some of the areas where we can see where, 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 where we need to be asking God to help us. In other words, sanctification items, because all of these verses take us back to Jesus as the, the, the example. Doing the will of God, purity, humility, forgiveness, interpersonal relationships, giving, suffering. And there are so, 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 so many more when you're reading the New Testament. There's a great Thomas Chisholm uh, 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 hymn that says, Oh, to be like the blessed Redeemer, this is my constant longing and prayer. Gladly I'll forfeit all of earth's treasures, Jesus, thy perfect likeness to wear. Would you really forfeit a lot of stuff if you could be more like the Lord Jesus Christ? And then stanzas two and three really get convicting. Because he gets down to the, the, the nitty-gritties here on the carpet where we live. And he mentions what those things are that we need, where areas we need to be conformed to Christ in. He says, compassion, loving, forgiving, tender, kind, helping the helpless, cheering the fainting, seeking the wandering sinner, lowly in spirit, holy, harmless, patient, brave, meekly enduring cruel reproaches, willing to suffer others to save. Wow. And that's just, that's just beginning. That's the, the checklist God has as he looks at our life and compares our life to what it should be like and, and the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, yep, but you're my child. And I care for you so much. If you're going to really show forth the moral excellencies of me, then I'm going to have to do some of these things in your life to get you to be where you need to be because I'm, I'm working on this product. Well... That's probably enough said for tonight, enough to chew on for the Holy Spirit to work in our lives. But wow, 
God perfectly changes us. God perfectly child-rears us for his glory and for our good. And therefore, as he's doing it, always remember, God is good all the time. He's right on time. He's just in time because that is his nature. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we thank you that you have been pleased to give us this revelation in your word. You've been pleased to tell us what you're really like so that we can know and not have to be trying to think up things and say, well, I wonder if this pleases God. I wonder if God would be upset if I did that. Help us to have our our nose in the book. Help us to be walking with you daily so that we know what pleases you, what displeases you, and then help us to want to do what's right. Thanks for being such a great, great God, a great dad to us and the interest you have in us even more than we have in ourselves. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.